Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. So today we're going to be talking about Jamel Bowie's article on American democracy. Its title in the 1619 issue is, America democracy has never shed an undemocratic assumption present at its founding that some people are inherently entitled to more power than others. This sort of makes me think of the question I asked on the first podcast, which is, are some people better than others? So in a similar vein, what are your thoughts on democracy? Do you like it? I mean, the idea of democracy is nice. And then you have to get, you know, that, that the people choose how they're ruled and governed, but then does it actually happen like that? Yeah, I can't say I'm a fan. I think the just the idea is sort of silly. The idea that something somehow becomes morally acceptable if a bare majority of people say it's acceptable. Idealistic. I mean, I think that as a means, it's decent. I mean, I think you can make the argument that democracy tends to give you better government than other forms, although there's people that argue elsewise. I mean, Hans Hermann Hoppe wrote a book called Democracy, the God that Failed, about how monarchy is better because monarchs have a higher time or a, a lower time preference than democracy because they think in terms of what they're going to give to their gen- to their descendants, whereas democracies just vote to give people stuff now. But I don't know. Are you saying you want uh, monarchy? or? Well, I'll, I can tell you I'd rather live in Liechtenstein, the United States' political setup. Maybe that's due to its size. I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of pithy quotes about democracy, like the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter, or democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones that have ever been tried. I don't have an inherent problem with democracy. I really don't. So I guess maybe that's the difference we have there. But I do think it's important to point out and not... I, I think it's something people understand but maybe don't always think about we don't live in a true democracy at best we live in a representative democracy so even when you think about how you would explain it with the majority voting for something that process has been delegated somewhat but on the whole i mean i guess i didn't think of it like a majority necessarily deciding whether things are moral or amoral but in terms of basic decision making I think people gravitate toward a democratic system. Like if, if you're out with friends and everyone's trying to decide where to eat, I don't often see one person take charge and just make a call. People tend to talk it out. And then I think most people are comfortable going with majority rules. The first problem I always think of when it comes to monarchy is the fact that you're born into a certain family. I don't think should have a side who gets to make decisions. Yeah, we don't live in a direct democracy where everything is put up to a vote of the people. I mean, we have some direct democracy elements with things like referendums and stuff. For the where, love you know, of all God. People in the state will vote on a certain Stop. bill or not. I, I, I just don't see direct democracy for everything as, as feasible. And there's this sort of saying where you talk about something as being great in theory, but not great in practice. But democracy is one of those things that doesn't even work in theory. If you sort of picture the ideal democracy, and I'm picturing that Norman Rockwell painting where there's like a town meeting and there's the guy who's like a blue collar worker standing up 
and he's about to give his piece, and this is supposed to be, you know, the brilliance of American democracy where everyone has a voice. But you can't have everyone have a voice because even at that meeting, there was someone there who set the agenda for what the meeting was going to be about. There's someone up there who recognizes who will speak, whose turn it is. And so, and even if you think about uh, like direct democracy referendums, there's someone who drafts the referendums. There's someone who decides how the referendums are interpreted. And so the idea that everyone has a voice or that everyone, as the article has it, that everyone can have the same power as other people, it's just not possible. Hierarchy is inevitable. We put on my Jordan Peterson lobster hat. You're never going to have a completely flat society. It's just not possible. Well, it's inevitable. And I mean, majority rules in and of itself implies that, yeah, there's going to be people who aren't happy. Like, I see where you're coming from. You're right. You won't have a completely equal society. And it's completely unrealistic that every single person would be able to participate to the same degree. But maybe it's the fact that, like, yes, there's going to be a hierarchy, but it's the idea that the hierarchy is changeable and that people can shift in and out or that if you want to be part of the government, you have a shot. It's, it's not an aspiration of mine, but if I wanted to, which I guess maybe that's kind of a segue into what we're about to talk about in this article, I'd have that opportunity. I have no desire to work in government or politics either. Jamel Bowie, as with many of the authors in this piece, is a columnist for the New York Times. He also serves as a political analyst for CBS News, and he likes to cover campaigns and national affairs and then culture going on in our country. He's been a political correspondent for many different magazines and has a degree in political, social thought and government from the University of Virginia. Bowie starts his article by saying that if you want to understand American politics in 2019 and the current state of the Republican Party, a good place to start is 2011 the year after a backlash to Barack Obama's presidency swept Tea Party insurgents into Congress, flipping control of the House. Do you guys remember much about the Tea Party? To be honest with you, I was young enough at the time that this was all being formed that all I remember surrounding it are the memes. People from the left who are writing about the right don't understand it very well. And I think it's true for the same for the right, right the left. I mean, you hear people on the right talk about, you know, the far left, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. And it's like, within the left, Nancy Pelosi is not far left. And they just don't understand the left. And people on the left don't understand the right. The Tea Party, yes, it was a backlash to Obamacare specifically. But more than anything, and this is something that I think has been lost to time, is the hatred of the rhinos, the Republicans in name only. And you heard people talk about basically turncoat Republicans who voted for higher spending every year. I mean, if you think about this, is really when Ted Cruz uh, comes on the scene and Ted Cruz is hated by the members of his own party. And so I think that there's, the Tea Party was always a minority within Republican circles and never actually got a hold on the establishment. And I think that's something that people on the left don't understand about the Tea Party. I did actually pull a lot of stuff on the growth and opportunity report because I thought it might be interesting to look at what the party decided to do to rebrand after the 2012 election. 
it was like the report that was created to find out what's going on with the Republican Party, what can be addressed and changed moving forward. So people both outside and within the Republican Party at this time were frustrated with how the party was functioning. There was a study commissioned and what they released ended up being called the Growth and Opportunity Report about the state of the Republican Party at the time. And essentially it found a couple key findings for how they could address issues. Number one being, based on this study, the general consensus was that people felt like the party did not care about them. They also noticed trends of younger voters leaving or not even considering the Republican Party in the first place. So their demographic, not only in members, but also in age of registered party members was shifting older and older. Minorities felt especially affected by the Republican Party. So the call to action the report recommended included minorities. Um, it suggested that members at the federal level should learn from what successful governors and senators are doing at the state and local level. And then the phrase kind of coined in here was results-oriented conservatism. And the whole idea after this came out was to rebrand the GOP as the growth and opportunity party to bring people back in and to kind of change the tide. It, it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the Tea Party, but I think it does touch on the fact that it is unclear why people maybe were so attracted to join the Tea Party even over being part of the Republican Party, because it did gain a lot of traction between like 2010 and 2013. I think the overall finding was really just that in order to be successful, their particular brand of conservatism needed to appear more welcoming and inclusive of changing demographics in the country. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that report. I, I really think that both the Tea Party and the Trump phenomenon were similar in that it was people on the ground, a lot in flyover country, who felt that they weren't represented by the party's elites. And it was really much a who is the outsider who will go in and, um, you know, sort of take it to the establishment. Trump was the biggest middle finger they could find in 2016. Ted Cruz was the biggest middle finger they could find in 2010. And it's, yeah, I think there's a lot of anger toward establishment politicians like, you know, Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney. Bowie sort of links the Tea Party first to uh, Newt Gingrich in the 1990s, and he calls that, that's what the conventional wisdom is, and Newt Gingrich in 94 was the year that the Republicans took the House for the first time since, I think, before World War II, and Newt Gingrich fueled by sort of a talk radio, Rush Limbaugh-like, own-the-libs personality. He's saying that um, it really goes back farther than that. Well, kind of how he alludes it goes back further. So he alludes to, I'm in the second column on here, where he says not just blocking Obama, but also casting him as fundamentally illegitimate and un-American. So I, I thought he was using that to kind of do a callback, if you will, to previously held attitudes in the country. Because it's, it's a little different than like a regular political smear campaign when you question if someone even is qualified. Because of their birthplace, yeah. And this is just one of those things that's just so transparent that the person who really started the 
birtherism campaign was Hillary Clinton in the primaries in 2008. She spent money on on this, and then she got a total pass in 2016. And people target people targeted Donald Trump as a birther, which he was, but he wasn't the one who started it. He just start he just continued something Hillary started, but that was totally left out of the narrative because the corporate press wanted Hillary to win. John Calhoun is not a fan of democracy in that he doesn't like the will of the majority because it can run roughshod over the rights of minorities. And the Constitution, as part of it, is a counter-majoritarian document. For instance, constitutional rights are counter-majoritarian. The First Amendment only applies when a majority is trying to do something, so it stops majorities. The First Amendment doesn't stop minorities because minorities can't pass laws, theoretically. So if something that blocks laws is counter-majoritarian, and so he, he has a line in here, and he says, In the reactionary position in this conflict, which seeks to narrow the scope of participation and arrest the power of majorities beyond the limits of the Constitution, but if, if you're worried about protecting racial minorities, it seems odd to be concerned with people who are trying to arrest the power of majorities, because that seems like it would be something that minorities would want, as a general rule. That's a good point. I guess that does kind of seem strange. Who is he referring to as like the power when he says majorities? Are we assuming he means male voters, like certain types of voters, or just general interests of the majorities? I think he's talking about the sort of majorities. And I think he has here in mind a sort of modern idea in America that the majority of Americans are in favor of progressive legislation like higher minimum wage, more environmental protection, things like that. And it's these minorities of rich corporations and Republicans who are using things like the Electoral College and stuff in order to thwart the will of the majority. And that's the thing that I think, mindset I think that he's writing this from. I could see that. And I think that is actually a pretty commonly held viewpoint today. So the people, I think to many people reading his work that would maybe just be assumed. So the next thing he talks about is slave owners who constructed elaborate sets of beliefs, customs, and ideologies meant to justify their positions in this economic and social hierarchy. These ideas permeated the entire South, taking deepest root in places where slavery was the most entrenched. I think he's what he's getting at is this sort of theory of slavery called the positive good theory, which is where in the 18th century, you saw slave owners talk about slavery as an evil institution. They'd like to get rid of it, but they just don't see sort of how. You know, this is pretty common among founding fathers, people like Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, to talk about the evil of slavery and we'd like to get rid of it. But then later on, there's a shift in the language that the South's using toward this positive good, where slavery is good not only for slave owners, but for the slaves themselves. Something that's a little less well known is that the positive good theory actually originated in, in the North in Massachusetts. Um, there was a man named John Saffin who wrote some pro-slavery arguments in 1701. This was not something that just sprang out of nowhere in the mid-19th century. This was this justification of slavery existed for a long time. Sort of not really surprising that people, when faced with an institution, will try to justify it. I think this sounds like a pretty extreme shift in thinking. So going from slavery is bad and evil, and I wish there was something we could do to not just, because if, if I'm right, the positive good actually meant that it was really good for 
everybody. And it wasn't just kind of like good by happenstance, but better. Like, thank goodness than no slavery. Which is a huge shift in thinking about it. And you're right. I mean, I'm sure it came from a desire to justify something that the founding fathers and then the people that came after them didn't necessarily know how to get rid of. It talks about Calhoun popularized the concept of nullification, the theory that any state subject to federal law was entitled to invalidate it. This is a very historically illiterate sentence. Nullification is the idea that unconstitutional laws are null and void, and so states have no duty to enforce them and can even stop the federal government from enforcing them. This concept was not popularized by Calhoun. It was popularized by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson in, re in reaction to the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Um, Thomas Jefferson wrote a report in, from, in, for Kentucky, which used the word nullification. Madison wrote a report for Virginia, which used the word interposition. In 1798, 1799, and 1800, there's a whole set of documents that they wrote. It's a nullification as part of what's called the, the spirit of 98. And, and the idea was basically, look, the, the legislature passed these laws that clearly violate the First Amendment, the Alien and Sedition Acts. The president signed it and is enforcing it, and the courts are allowing it to happen. And not only are they not striking the laws down as unconstitutional, they are actually complicit in there. I mean, there's a story about which which justice was it? It was the one that got impeached, but he basically, he was in a state and he held up a book that was critical of John Adams and said, I'm going to go to the state where this guy lives, I'm going to impanel a grand jury, I'm going to put him on trial, and then I'm going to convict him, and then I'm going to throw the book at him. And he and then the Supreme Court justice goes to that state, impanels a grand jury, does all those things, throws this guy in jail. So Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are looking at this and saying, look, if the president, the legislature, and the Supreme Court are all violating the Constitution. What's left? And they say, well, I guess the states have to step in and interpose um, between the citizens and tyranny. And that's where the, the idea comes from. It's a completely constitutional idea. It's been bad-mouthed as sort of associated with slavery because of John Calhoun. The thing is, though, that nullification was never used in support of slavery. It was used against a tariff in the South in eighteen in the eighteen thirties, sort of unsuccessfully. But by far the most pre-Civil War, the most sustained use of nullification was against the Federal Fugitive Slave Act by Northern states in order to protect runaway slaves. There's a famous Wisconsin Supreme Court case about this. It's even used in the present day when you look at you know state nullification of federal marijuana laws or what have you. It's an important idea. It's a good idea in the federal government, basically and its court intellectuals have been able to brainwash the American people into thinking that it's a bad idea that is a legacy of slavery. I mean, really, it sounds to me like it's a procedure that's meant as a safeguard so that if something is unconstitutional, it's almost like another form of checks and balances. If there is something that is unconstitutional, states have the ability to handle it instead of allowing unconstitutional laws to go into effect. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, so if the president's veto fails as a, as a check, and then the Supreme Court's judicial review fails as a check, I mean, what's left? He, he has a line in here that says, To Calhoun, there was no union per se. Instead, the United States was simply a compact among sovereigns with distinct and often competing sectional interests. So that, that's nonsense. Calhoun thought there was a union. That's what a union is. 
when different people come together. I mean, Calhoun did think there was a compact. You know, the Constitution was a compact, which this is relating to a legal theory called the compact view of the Constitution, which, as opposed to the nationalist view of the Constitution, which has ramifications both for nullification and secession. Spoiler alert, the compact theory is absolutely right. I mean, yeah, there are distinct and competing sectional interests. I don't think that there's any disagreement with that, especially back then when you had one section of the country that was primarily agrarian and another section of the country that was rapidly industrializing. You absolutely had competing sectional interests when you look at anything from, I mean, the primary one of this is a protective tariff, which helps industrialized sections and hurts agrarian sections. And then there's also internal improvements. If you have one section ultimately get more power over the other, then that section can impoverish the other section. That's a definite concern. Well, and the Calhoun quote he brings in related to that is that representation affords not the slightest protection. As in representation, as Calhoun was saying, for southern states, he didn't believe was it was enough to be represented to be able to have their needs addressed. Calhoun is famous for this idea of the concurrent majority, as opposed to, he calls it the Madisonian idea of rule by numerical majority, but it's really just a democratic idea, which is, in a concurrent government, each interest or portion of the community has an equal say in approving the actions of the state. So rather than just, so let's say you have, you know, a majority of people and then some minority groups, rather than just the one majority being able to dictate to the minority groups, a majority of each group, both from the minority groups and from the majority groups, has to be in agreement. I fail to see the problem with this. This, to me, sounds not only good as a general rule, I feel like it's also very good for minority groups. Why, why would this not be a good thing for them? Do you know if there was ever a time he was able to put this into effect, even on a smaller scale? I would just be interested to see how, it, like, if it would match a typical majority or if it would come out differently or how people would feel about it. Calhoun's idea for how this would work in the United States was, it was related to his idea of nullification, which was sort of the engine by which the concurrent majority was put into practice. So he thought of each of the states as sort of a separate society or, or group of people. So it's not like when we think of groups, we tend to think of, you know, maybe racial or economic groups rather than geographical regions. Maybe that's more the case today with sort of globalization and, you know, fast travel sort of eliminating distance as, as anything. But back then, I mean, these were real differences in societies. And so what would do is if, if the government passed a law, one state could convene a convention and declare it unconstitutional. And if that was the case, then the law would be of no effect until basically a sufficient number of states, I think it was two-thirds, whatever the requirement for ratify an amendment to the Constitution is, if enough of those, enough other states also got together in conventions and declared the law constitutional, then it would again be binding on the first state. And that was the mechanism by which, so it wasn't a, an absolute concurrent majority because there could still be one state that was overruled even with the majority of people in that state, but it was, it was closer to his idea and that's the engine that he proposed to put it into practice. Okay, that makes more another sense. level of security. It makes more sense thinking, I, when I pictured it, when you said it, I was thinking more like economic groups or race groups or I mean, any other kinds of factors, and I was wondering how to create all of those, but in the way he was, yeah, no, that makes sense to me in the way he was imagining it. And when you said it, it did remind me of the ratification process. He, so going on in the article, um, 
it says the government Calhoun envisioned would protect liberty. Um, and then he says, not the liberty of the citizen, but the liberty of the master, the liberty of those who claimed a right to property and a position at the top of a racial and economic hierarchy, which in the article, I think is really the precursor to the point Jamal Bowie is trying to make about today's government. So he takes what he said and he takes these different systems and we just discuss them in kind of a light that makes them seem very, very reasonable. But here in the article, he's saying this would lead to protecting a different kind of liberty. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely true that Calhoun was concerned with protecting the Southern upper class. I, I don't think that there's a disagreement with that. But that's not, if, if you put this kind of system into place, that's not the only group that could ever be protected by it. Yeah, just because it can be used in one way doesn't mean that's the only way it can be can be used. He he then talks about the talking about how voting needs to be sort of protected, and he he quotes this Tea Party congressional candidate from Florida who said voting is a privilege and seemed to endorse property requirements for participation. And I don't know about you guys, but I am all for voter suppression. I want to make it as hard to vote as possible. Like the idea that someone who can't take the time to make sure they're able to vote beforehand. What if everyone just like on the election day was texted, who do you want to vote for? Person that if they had to go to the polling place wouldn't vote, but because now they got texted they would vote. That marginal person, I, I, I don't think that they, uh, they have good insights on voting. Really? Yeah. Like if you can't take the time like, if you don't care enough to, like, figure out where your voting place is and go there. Do you think it's that they don't care enough and so they shouldn't be able to, to vote? I think they don't care enough, yeah. And, or, or even, like, a requirement that, you know, you, have, you can't register at the polling place. You have to register, you know, so far out. Yeah, that is absolutely, like, a, a caring thing. I completely disagree, but I'm sure you saw that coming. I guess I would say, isn't it your right to do what you want with your vote? So if I live in a country where I'm allowed to vote, I mean, sure, there's so, I mean, there really are so many barriers to some groups of people or even some regions voting. But if all of those are removed and I still choose not to exercise my right, that's a choice. I, I don't know that voter suppression would solve any problems in this country other than to further solidify who should and shouldn't be considered legitimate in a voting process. I mean, why create barriers for people that that seems unnecessary to me? Well, I, I was I using the term voter suppression sort of tongue in cheek. You make it a, something a little bit difficult to do, that's going to weed out some of the, the people. But I think the problem comes in to you make it a little bit more difficult for some people to do, and I think most of the people that's going to affect are going to have, gosh, how do I put this into words? It's going to affect people in certain situations a lot more than it's going to affect people in other situations. There might be community groups that are helping people, you know, get the time off work or be able to get to where they can vote, but that's a boundary that other people aren't going to have to deal with and the 
that's where like there's going to be disparity in any uh, any of those situations. And well, that's, right. That's where difficulties come into. Play. I I do think to some extent, yeah, you should have to you should have to care about what making your vote and going and voting. But I can't. There's just you're not going to be able to apply those steps equally to people or it's not going to have the same effect on different groups of people. Yeah, well, I and think- if you've always been in a situation where you don't have obstacles to voting, like if you live in a family that either A, stressed the importance of being involved in politics, or B, if you, by nature of your position, your status, are more informed about issues, you don't have as many obstacles in place. And what's to say that if everything had turned and you found yourself on the other side of the coin, you wouldn't also be a person who felt either confused or like your vote didn't count. I mean, by saying some people like don't care enough, I mean, I'm not either if I felt like I didn't understand the process or I didn't feel like people wanted me to be involved. I, I think our disagreement sort of goes back to our view of democracy. So I, I don't view democracy as a good in and of itself. I don't think there is a right to vote. I, I want to get as good as policy as possible. And so I don't think a society where a vast majority of people voted to put Jews in concentration camps is better than a society where there was a dictator who didn't put Jews in concentration camps. I care about the end policy, not about how it was arrived at. I think. If there is a value to democracy, it's not as an ends, but as a means, in that democracies tend to create better policies than dictatorships and tyrannies. But that being said, I, so I don't view there as to be a, a right. So I think that if there are people that I think make bad decisions and would make bad decisions that would lead to worse policy, I am okay with those people not voting. I don't know oh, if I should Lord. say something very douchey right now. I'm going to say it. Lauren's bracing herself. In America, a lot of people who are poor are poor because they make bad decisions. And if they make bad decisions with money, maybe they're going to make bad decisions in the voting booth. Hmm. Lauren disagrees. Well, I guess I'll put it this way. You don't believe voting, regardless of what it is now, you don't believe voting should be a right, correct? No. Then how would you want it classified? Voting is a decision-making a decision-making process. Then how do you decide who's involved in the decision-making process and who isn't? Well, I don't think it's a moral question. I don't think it's because I, I don't think it's like a, a rights thing. I think that it's a utilitarian thing. So if we're looking at what's going to get the best policy, you look at what you know who voting is going to be the best sort of for society. Do you personally vote? I, I, I have voted the last time only because Autumn made me go with her. I just wondered. When I was at working at UP, the polling place was in the library. So I, and I went to the library over lunch anyway, so I just stopped down and voted. And so then, since it was like an easy, convenient decision for you, <laughs> you got in on the process. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I vote, but I, I just genuinely enjoy researching I honestly probably wouldn't have voted this year if my friends didn't drag me out. Partly because I don't live in a swing state and like that like my vote wasn't gonna make a difference in the presidential election. As long as we're on the route route trail of voting, there's a couple of theories. Like there's 
the theory of rational ignorance, which is that you spend time learning about things that you can impact and you don't spend time learning about things that you can't control. So, you know, if you're going to buy a go buy a car, you do a bunch of research on it because that you, you control the car you're going to buy. On the other hand, if you're moving into a house, you don't research the electric company because you don't get to choose your electric company, at least in Nebraska. And so when it comes to voting, it takes a lot of work to research all the different candidates. But the odds that your vote is going to actually impact the election is, is so, so small that it's not a good use of your time to research candidates um, unless you happen to enjoy researching candidates. Nerd. And, and so for that reason, we, we, don't, we shouldn't expect voters to know what they're doing because there's no incentive for them to do so. There's uh, another view on why voting is not very good, and it was by Brian Kaplan wrote this book called The Myth of the Rational Voter, which was about how when people vote, they're not actually trying to select policies. What they're doing is expressing, um, they're doing it to sort of express their values rather than actually looking at policy. I think one breeds the other. Rational ignorance. Actually, let's not even call it that. Let's just call it ignorance. I'm not sure people necessarily go into a situation looking to vote for, you know, a certain color, if you will, like, but that's usually what happens. If you're ignorant of what's going on, whether that's a rational choice or whether that's just a byproduct of not doing your research before going to the polls, most people, I mean, if you check the little red box on your driver's license when you go in or you check the little blue box, you're going to match it on your ballot. It becomes more of, I mean, and I like voting. I know I just said that, but um, if you don't know what you're doing, it does become more of a systematic agreement and alignment process. I would be interested to see how many ballots are turned in where people make zigzags in what they choose. I bet it doesn't happen all too often. And I will say, I mean, I've, I think I've voted in every election I've had the opportunity to, but if I didn't feel like I could speak to something, I have left it blank. So there was, it was like right when I turned 18, it was the first thing I did and it was should such and such judge be retained. And I remember looking at it and thinking, well, I've never heard of this person. Like, I don't think it should really be up to me if I can't even picture their face. So I didn't mark anything. One year I voted, I voted to get rid of all of them. My vote is never going to impact it. Even if an election does come down to one vote, it will not come down to that one vote. It will come down to the attorneys and the courts at that point. He talks about there's a homegrown ideology of reaction and it goes back to the Tea Party. And it says, the Tea Party billed itself as a reaction to debt and spending, but a close look shows it was actually a reaction to an ascendant majority of black people, Latinos, Asian Americans, and liberal white people. Which, if you're talking about demographics, I don't know why liberal white people would, would worry, you know, sort of racist. That implies, I think, that it's more of an ideological thing. But and it says that the Tea Party Republicans were motivated by the fear and anxiety associated with the perception that real Americans are losing their country. I am familiar with some white supremacists and white supremacist organizations. They are not anti-spending. Um, people like you know Richard Spencer, they're not laissez-faire people. They are they like big government spending. They don't have a problem with it. And the idea that that white supremacists are somehow pro-free market is silly. And when I and when I hear, I know a lot of conservatives who talk about losing the country. They're not talking about race. They're talking about 
legally and culturally. They're not, they're not race obsessed. I do think the idea of losing a country is, I mean, regardless if it's a racially motivated idea or not, I've always thought it's kind of a strange thing to say. I, I think people who say it are, at least I view them as people being afraid of change or afraid of, I mean, really anything they don't understand. But regardless of how, so, I, I just, you, you can't lose a country. You can only lose a country if it ceases to be a country. What, what I think they're getting at is sort of losing the uniqueness of America. I, I saw some a video today where actually that idea kind of popped into my head a little bit. I can't remember what city it was in, but they were driving, it, it was car driving and filming, and it looked like a third world country. There was like no one there, all the buildings were broken out, there was trash everywhere, you know, burned husks of buildings, like like you see like on documentaries after a war. And it was it was a major metropolitan, it was an area in a major metropolitan city. I think that the worry is that certain policies will cause the U.S. to lose its, I don't know, wealth is the right word, but it's sort of its its uniqueness as a place and turn it into a failed, you know, communist state or whatever it is. And people aren't worried about America ceasing to exist. They're worried about America turning into Venezuela or Romania circa 1985. So this is really where he jumps into the Tea Party. So he goes from this statement really into the modern Tea Party. And he, I guess maybe this is more kind of how I took the losing the country statement, but he says, it is a heartfelt cry about where they fear their country may be headed, as in why people may elect to join the Tea Party instead of just the GOP. He addresses kind of in the context of different elections and then the 2016 election where, and really it was incredibly divisive. No matter which side you were on, people had some pretty firmly entrenched views and there were some insane things. I don't think people have ever seen in, at least not in my lifetime, an election before. And one thing he says in here is that in addition to winning the electoral college in a landslide, he declared on Twitter, meaning Trump, sorry, weeks after the election, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. The larger implication is clear enough. The majority made up of liberals and people of color isn't a real majority. And the solution is clear too, to write those people out of the to use every available tool to weaken their influence on American politics. Which I thought was maybe kind of important to address because it does get back at the idea of who really should get to vote or can you determine something is invalid just because it doesn't suit your needs or didn't come out the way you thought it would. I don't know if you can draw a lot of conclusions from Trump's ego. Unlike the 2020 election, I didn't hear a lot of agreement among the right with the claim that Trump won the popular election in 2016 by landslide. But of course, he wrote this before the 2020 election, so maybe he would have used that as evidence in his uh, article. And, and he does actually make a concession here that you could argue that it has nothing to do with race at all. It's simply an aggressive effort to secure conservative victories. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's there's some people out there who are obsessed with race on the right, but among the conservatives that I know personally, 
they are not obsessed with race. And I think it is the latter rather than the former. I guess looking at it in terms of 2020, and yeah, this was written before the most recent election, but at least I can't think of an election. I don't want to say I can't. I can't think of many elections growing up where the outcome was released and people just started shouting, well, it was rigged. Or like, well, it's obviously wrong. So I think that maybe is kind of a newer addition. And I see that happening now that it's happened on such a large scale in 2020. It's something I could see happening more frequently on both sides after elections, just the automatic disbelief following it, the automatic need to like cancel it out and say, nope, wrong, got to redo it. So obviously the 2000 election was a big one where probably even more controversial than this one. I think a lot of people are forgetting about 2016. Well, in terms of shock and not accepting it sort of on an emotional level, I think happened in 2016 as well. And there was, there were court cases just like in 2020, there were court cases in 2016 to, to Donald Trump's victory. And there were sort of related to the Russiagate hoax. There was these things pushed about Russians hacking voting machines. And there were representatives that voted not to certify the election results in 2016. And there was talk about using the electoral college to have faithless electors and put in with Colin Powell, I can't even remember who the, the crazy sort of scheme was in 2016. The extent to which 2020 is unique, I think 2020 isn't, 2020 is definitely a ramping up over 2016, but I think the seeds of 2020 were in 2016 as well. Although 2020, um, among the sort of more sane people on the right that aren't talking about Dominion voting machines and all these things, uh, a big argument was made about how the fact is the Constitution says that state legislatures determine the voting rules for an election. And in 2020, a lot of state Supreme Courts, which aren't the state legislatures, modified the state voting rules passed by the legislatures in light of the pandemic. And some people argued that this is unconstitutional because it's not the legislature doing it, it's the state Supreme Court. It's particularly in places like Pennsylvania to allow you know universal mail-in balloting. That's sort of the arguments, and and as well as the fact that mail-in balloting is not used in in a lot of European elections because of its worries about um, safety. There was a study headed up by Jimmy Carter in the mid-2000s that found that mail-in voting had wide possibilities for fraud. And uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who's currently in the middle of a recall election, attempted to invalidate some of the signatures because they were mailed in, and he said that there was the potential for fraud. So it's just, it's all politics. It's all a game. If your side wins, then mail-in voting is totally safe. And if your side might lose, then mail-in balloting is ripe for fraud. Which again, I guess just worries me for future elections. Because you're right. It is, I mean, whoever side wins, those are the people calling for like the recount or that this was rigged or this was incorrect. But if we've seen like two escalations in a row... It just doesn't point to a fun 2024. It worries you. It does not worry me. (laughs) Who I do not fear a total breakdown in the legitimacy of the government or its elections. I'm not sure I want to deal with the fallout. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully the national divorce, when it occurs, will be peaceful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.